Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Silent General. Uh, we're so excited to have you join us. So good to have everyone on board. We're so excited to have you join us on the very first edition of Silent Generals. The vision behind Silent General is because we have a generation of people and we've come to terms with the fact that the serious um, moral decadence, um, correct role models are gradually evading the scene. And we have so many people looking for real life stories and real life people to share how they've been able to transit and transition from who they used to be to who they are. Many people are, see the successes, they don't understand the struggles behind it, the story behind it. They don't, know, they don't understand the test behind the testimonies. And that's why we're bringing up Silent Generals to have this generation listen to real people, real people that had real issues, real struggles. And today they, they're telling the stories of their triumphs and the stories and the testimonies. And we're so excited to have with us today someone that I personally am privileged, you know, by God and a face in our lives. So I'm privy to some of the stories. I, I'm sure Mr. Inka, you remember some time back when we were having a conversation about me starting a newsletter around this and you honored us then, even when we didn't have a full picture of, you know, what we're doing. But that, that, that's, that staring has always been there that, you know, we need to share these stories. We need to share them. There's somebody somewhere that will so benefit from these stories and will be able to see what is possible. And, and I'm so excited that when we started this, it also gave us the honor to be the first person that will open up this conversation for us on the Silent Generals. So I want to welcome all of you with me to Silent Generals and to have with me conversations with Dr. Adeyinka Adewale. It, it is such a joy to have you, sir. It's, it's been, you. it's, I've been so looking forward to this conversation because I know <laughs> this one is deep because it's personal. This is one-on-one. <laughs> This is one-on-one. -on -one. This is true to life. There's, we're not hiding anything here. We're laying all playing on the table. And beyond our structured questions, we're going to have so much unstructured <laughs> because this, this is going to be a deep conversation. Right. Thank you so much, Lara. And, um, so you're welcome, And sir. the Flickers of Hope Foundation for having me and the entire team for the great work you're doing. I honestly honor and appreciate what you're doing. And the whole um, philosophy behind this initiative is highly commendable. And um, really, I'm trusting God that you know, many lives will be touched by the many great minds you're going to be bringing onto the platform to share their stories and to encourage you know those who may be in a particular phase or season of life looking for some glimmer of hope that they can hold on to to weather mm -hmm. the storms and to emerge on the other side better human beings so thank you so much for making this happen really appreciate it thank you so much sir and we welcome you on board silent general so we're going straight into the conversations that we'll be having with dr Adewale. the first thing i would love him to do for us is to give us an introduction of who is adinka Adewale. where is it coming <laughs> from we who is he today we want to know we want to know who dr diwali is uh, that's a, that's an interesting question um so that's that's a huge identity one um covers as many bits of my aspects of my life as i think might be um, encouraging to listeners first of all i'm a christian i'm a child of god by faith through grace in christ jesus um, and i think that's important to me because that's the centerpiece of everything that i am and everything i would ever be and that that identity is the core of everything else that i am today 
today. But beyond that, I am I'm currently um, an academic, so I'm a lecturer at the Henley Business School, University of Reading. I, I belong to the Center for Entrepreneurship there and been there for, I've been teaching, um, I've been lecturing there for about five years now. And also I'm a social innovator. That means that I, I take delight in solving social problems, crafting clever innovations around social problems and designing solutions for them. And I've been doing that for about maybe 15 years now since I was in university. And that has resulted recently into me finding a platform we call the Africa Social Innovators Network, which is pretty much a, an innovation ecosystem, virtual innovation ecosystem that is supporting social innovators anywhere in the world doing stuff in Africa. So that's, so those two big blocks find me. But outside of those two, I'm also a professional coach, certified professional coach, and also a consultant. Um, and I run a consultancy practice that embeds coaching, research, advisory, and training services. And the name of that is called Trace Advisory. Um, so in simple terms, um, I have those three, I would say, professional identity buckets, an academic, a researcher. I actively research and I publish. I'm a social innovator. I'm also an executive coach and consultant. I'm a Christian by faith, but then I'm also a father and a husband too. A father to my daughter, amazing daughter, Miss Yolua. Yeah, that's, that's it about me. So in terms of where I've come from... <laughs> Uh, that's an interesting one. It's been a long journey, if I must say. I was born in Ibadan, born and raised in Ibadan. Spent the first 18 years of my life in Ibadan. I, I had my primary and secondary school education in the crossover to Lagos for my university education in 2002. Um, a little bit more about my background family-wise. I was born into a polygamous family and I grew up in sort of a large blended family, I would say. And what that means is things a little bit, so a bit, the structure was is a bit different. So, I, so my dad had a first wife and I had step-siblings about five of them. My mom had a first marriage that failed, but she came out of that marriage with three wonderful men, sons, um, and then my dad took those three sons on board, and then my mom had three of us for him. So you can see it's a, it's a bit of a, there's a lot of blendedness going on there. Um, but I grew up with the with the three sons that my mom um, brought in from her first marriage um, with my own siblings, and those were the ones that we kind of grew up together. So it was like having six boys in the household-ish, you know, growing up. Um, and of course, we had the, the other side of the family, my, my step-siblings, um, with whom we often, you know, got in contact with during family gatherings or during long holidays and so on. They were way, they were much older than we we are. But it was just, um, that was just the way the family was structured. And we lived in Ibadan. My dad lived in Lagos primarily, but he would often come to Ibadan every weekend. So my dad was like a weekend dad. My father was a very present father. That, I have to say, I give it to him. Running two families was in itself a difficult task. And managing the conflicts that come with that was huge. Demonstrated commitment that I will always and forever honor because had it not been for that commitment to us his children i don't think we'll be where we are today because we hear loads of stories about people who even have one family a nuclear family and still can't manage it but however god gave that man the wisdom to do it even though polygamy is a no-no but however god gave him the wisdom to do it i will forever be grateful to god that i grew up under his you know tutelage as my father because he was present he instilled values in me that shaped me my father taught me three things that has defined who i am today. He taught me the gift of diligence and hard work. He taught me the gift of integrity, which I will always forever honor. And he taught me the gift of excellence. Those three things that are now the core values I hold on to as a young man were instilled in me by my father from a very young age. He preached, he lived, and desired us 
to be diligent people. He hated anyone who was lazy. We knew it as a matter of principle when you are home, that even if before, even when my father is physically present in the house, we knew we, we had those usual you know, shenanigans of living in a, in a typical you know, Nigerian household where, well, I don't know, maybe say typical, but in my case, I call it typical because it was like, you know, you couldn't watch TV, you know, you had a set time to watch TV and, you know, you couldn't. My father was um, a bit of, you know, find it a bit uncomfortable staying in the sitting room with him, you know, that kind of stuff because there was this thing about his presence that, you know, just made everybody sit up. You know, he would always want you to work. If he was home any, any time of the day, you're either meant to be reading a book or you're meant to be doing some chore. You just weren't allowed to be idle. So he taught us the gift of diligence and he taught us the, the gift of diligence beyond just reading and education, but also in non in, in vocational skills. My father would expect that if, if sockets in the house got burnt, you would at least with him try to, to fix it. He gave us a lot of things that today as a, as a man and a father and a husband, I'm appreciating all those gifts. Um, and he then also gave us, gave me, and, and I, I held on to that as one of his best gifts to me, the gift of integrity. You just could not lie, my father. It will, if he caught you lying, you were in trouble. He hated it. He taught us to hate lying. He taught us to be people of integrity. He taught us to say that our word was our bond. If we said we were going to do something, we had to do it and we shouldn't bend it. And if we didn't get it done, he taught us to own up and say we didn't do it. Um, and he hated us. I mean, one of the biggest lessons in, in integrity that my father taught me, I will never forget, and it shaped my, my, my ideology and mentality, was that there was a day he sent me on an errand to buy him a newspaper. I will never forget. I was barely about 11 11, 12. Then he sent me to the vendor just across the road. Go buy me a newspaper, he said. I bought the newspaper. I'll never forget. It was a Punch newspaper and a Guardian newspaper. He told me, buy me a Punch and Guardian newspaper. And he gave me, I think, was it 200 Naira or so? When I bought both of them, came home, there was a 5 Naira change that was left. And I took that 5 Naira and I pocketed it. And I'm like, well, nobody should complain. You know, it's, you know, it's just 5 Naira. Let me just keep that one. And maybe later I can go and buy sweets for myself. Um, and, you know, my father looked at the figures on the on the newspapers and he said, Yinka, come here. Both of these things amount to 195 naira. Where is the five naira change? And I brought it out of my pocket. And he said, before you give it to me, he said, go and bring the cane. Then he flogged me. And then he said to me, do you know what you did? I said, no. He said, you stole. I said, I didn't steal. It was my it was it was the money you gave. He said you stole. I said I, I didn't steal, Daddy. He said you stole. He said that is how that's how stealing begins. When you send a child on an errand and you are not accountable to the full figure, he said I can give you the five naira. I love you as a father. It is not that I can't dash you the money, but you know you have to first be open and honest, be accountable. This was what you sent me to the market with. This was what I came back. This was how much the things I bought were. This is how much the change is. Here is your change. Have it. And he said to me, here's your change. Have it. And then he can say to me, I will gift that money. Now, the reason why that lesson became significant was that because you said this is in the spirit of bearing it all. I remember when you and I were serving in Abuja, there was a particular building project that was given that we started to build a house for coppers in the region to, to live in. And I was the project manager in charge of that house. I remember that monies were given to me to manage the project. It was that fear, not even talking about the fear of God from the perspective of this is a God project. It was that fear of you couldn't be given so much money for a public 
public project and embezzle the fund because the root of corruption starts in stealing little things or at least ignoring little values like that. The problem we have in Nigeria today as a society started from that whole, you know, compromise from a very little and an early age where we yeah. don't understand what integrity is. We don't understand the little mm. bit of integrity starts with little, little things. And when I was giving that money to build the house, I remember very, I remember there was a period I was hungry and I had to take out that money to buy some food. Did you know between me and you now I'm saying it openly. I remember I took a note of the monies that I used to have lunch. And when I left there and I was able to make some salary for myself. I did a compound interest of that money and paid it back to the NCCF. That you don't know. I did it back. I gave it back. No. Now, would you say that, would you say that, um, um, you know, you were entitled to some lunch money from that money? Nobody knew that money was gone. Nobody knew I took that money to eat. And if I told anybody, I just took a little bit of the money to feed, nobody would complain because it's expected. Nobody was giving me a salary. I was volunteering and I could use the money to eat. Um, a little bit. I'm not talking of extravagant eating here, just a little bit of lunch every day for myself. But at the back of my head, I said to myself, this was not part of the agreement. I owe it in the spirit of integrity to pay it back. I didn't even tell anybody, but I paid it back in multiple, multiple fold deliberately because of the spirit of integrity. And the third thing was the spirit of excellence. There is no, it's, if it is not worth doing at all, don't, don't do it. But if you will do it and it will have your signature on it, it has to be well done. You know, when God made us, he made us and put his signature on us. Whatever will carry your signature has to be with excellence. It has to define excellence. People have to see something and say, we see where it is coming from. When I crossed over to Lagos for my um, higher education um, in 2002, those values followed me. And, and I started off at the University of Lagos. It was a difficult moment for me. It was a difficult moment for me because that was, it was at the University of Lagos that those three values were coalesced together to really test who I was as a man. I was tested to yes. the core. And really, I want to talk about to some of those things because my next question was going to be, what are your defining moments as a young person? <laughs> what are those moments when you were... You were, you were come because you know I'm privy to some of these stories and I know how meaningful they are. For every young person that will listen to this, this is a meaningful conversation in the sense that if you will listen into some of these values, because one, one of the things we're big about in Flickers of Hope is values. If you can get the principal values that will help you as a young person, you will emerge victorious and triumphant. And that's why I want you to speak to those defining moments. You mentioned three values now, you know, you, the value of integrity, the value of excellence. You mentioned, you know, duty, be, be, being, being hardworking, being diligent. Now, for me, those three, those, those three values are critical. And, and I want to speak to those things as you know, as a young person, how did that define your journey? Thanks, um, Lara. That's a, that's a that's a great question. So, you know, in life, you have what we call the foundational phase of a man's life or of a person. And the foundational phase is usually that age of maybe from birth to like maybe when you're hitting the age of about eighteen to twenty. You know, 
just before you get to 30, anything between the ages of 18 and 30 is the foundational phase. Of course, bearing in mind that you have the formative early years and the formative years of between the age of zero and say three, and then from three to like say 10 and so on. However, you want to cut the, the timeline, whatever it is that is instilled in you, then will form what we call your foundations. And as you grow older in life, as you get to start to experience life, life will start to put pressure on you to test whether those values and that foundation is strong enough to weather the storms of life. What often tends to happen is that where the foundation is faulty, those storms will expose and will often lead people down a very dangerous path. It is not that it is impossible to remedy the situation. In fact, the beauty of life is that there will always be second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances. There'll be a lot of opportunities to rectify the wrongs. But the challenge that comes with them is that you want to make sure you, you it becomes the older you, the longer you live it, the more expensive it becomes because you are buying time that you're supposed to use to build on top of a foundation to rectify the fault in the foundation. Those who are used to um, building projects will understand the concept of underpinning, whereby you're trying to take that foundation to a more stable soil. It takes a lot of time. It's, bet it's better to have built a solid foundation. So to your question around how those values defined or how they, how they helped or how they shaped, how they defined me. Let me begin with the moment I discovered the value of diligence and excellence in it, in it at its core. So here was I, primary school chap, <laughs> you know, not your very best students in class. I was floating somewhere, you know, maybe in the middle of a park or maybe, maybe, maybe top 10 on my very good day. Yeah, you know, I was just there, you know. Um, and I remember I'll come home, you know, show my parents the report card. And you know what you tend to hear um, is, you know, who told you you couldn't be you know, first, I told you it could be third and all of that. I'd be like, just let me be, you know, I'm just, you know, coasting through life. My father in his, in his, um, you know, he's late now. My father in his wisdom would often delight in giving or setting us tasks that were a little beyond our time. So if you are in primary four, he will get you to start to do some things that were maybe a little bit ahead of you just to say to you, you see all these things about maths or English, all these subjects, it is not rocket science. You can actually know it if you want to know. If you set your heart, it, you can know it. But I hated that with all my heart. I didn't want to do that. I just say, I'm at this level. Give me something fit for my level. So one day he called me and he said to me, do you know Pythagoras theorem? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, Pythagoras what? I don't know any Pythagoras theorem. And it was like, go and bring your book. Let me show you. And I, he sat me down and then he showed me and I found it very easy. I was like, oh, is that a Pythagoras theorem? Oh, pretty straightforward. I know this. I can do it. And um, it was as if that moment was a prophetic moment. I didn't know when it was going to really come back to me. So it taught me on a Saturday like this. Monday, I got to school and they said that there was going to be... Um, some scholarship that the, the school that they okay so it was a national mathematical center that they wanted every school in nigeria to appoint one student that would represent that school in the national mathematics competition and that would mean that all those want whoever represents the school would then get to go to some venue that the state has appointed at the state level you will do a major maths exam or test and then they will collate the winners from the state and then they will choose 
maybe two winners from each state, something very, very serious like that. So I was in school and my class teacher walked into class and I said, hi guys, there's any, any opportunity the school needs to choose who would represent her in the national mathematics competition. It was an impromptu test. The school said, and we need to send the names tomorrow. So we're going to decide who is going today. So they said, okay, primary six students, um, primary six A, B, and I think C or so. <laughs> they said, let's get the names of, let's pick, I think they said they were going to pick 20 of us. So, here, so as God will have it, you know, I'm always floating top, either 10, 11. So my name made it to the list somehow. <laughs> I somehow got in there. Guys, we walked into that, you know, little test hall. They sat all 20 of us down and they put 10 questions on the board. And guess what? All 10 were Pythagoras theorem. I, I, I don't know how that happened. I always say till tomorrow, did my father speak to the principal that that was what was, was there, was there a collusion that that was what was going to happen? And these are what I call defining moments of God in a man's life. When God just deliberately trains you for something and you find you, you just happen into the situation that you've been purposely trained for and you just deploy the skill and people begin to wonder, where did this person come from? I wasn't the best mathematician in my school at that time. I wasn't even close to being the best, but I was trained in a specific topic. I deployed that knowledge. And then guess what? I left the exam all in 15 minutes. People wow. said I had failed. You, and you can imagine, people laughed. They said I had failed. And I left. The results came out. I got 100% because I knew Pythagoras theorem. <laughs> the best students in mathematics oh, yeah. didn't pass. They all, they all failed it. And so I was the sole representative of the school. I remember getting home that day, calling my father on the phone. And I said, you know, we used to have this landline phones, then those um, dialing telephones. He called him and I said to him, I said, daddy, <laughs> you can't imagine what happened today. This is, this is the situation. He, over the phone, he said to me, he said, now that you are the only person they have chosen, this is not only Pythagoras theorem they're asking that test. You better don't go to that test and let yourself down. <laughs> I was like, good Lord. So I had to put myself together and started training like never before because what happened was that when I tasted that little bit of success, just a little bit oh, of success, it inspired something in me that I can oh. actually do this. I can actually be the best. I can actually become. Remember, I wasn't doing too well before then. I wasn't failing, but I also wasn't doing too well. I wasn't the most yeah. excellent in class. Mm. But that taste of success of what could be, that's what we call potential. What you can become, but haven't yet become. I had a taste of what I could become, but I hadn't yet become. And so that little experience just shifted my life. To cut the long story short, I went for the maths exam, state level. I actually also aced it at the state level, then became one of people that won the national mathematics competition country at, at that time. And then I was given a, a scholarship that mm. covered me from GSS1 to GSS3. Actually, it was the, it awesome. was the federal government that you paid my, my, my school fees then. Awesome. I, I love this because, you know, the, the two things you mentioned, I just, I just want to quickly highlight for, for, for those that are joining us and will listen into this. Now, he said that one of the defining moments for him was a time when his father said to him, Yinka, come, do you know Pythagoras theorem? So you had somebody in your space to challenge you from mediocre level to excellence. Absolutely. From just potential to actually bringing out a treasure in you 
that has always been there, but you did not. So it, what he did, what that did for you was to unlock something in you. Yes, ma'am. And a, a taste of that success told you that, Yinka, there's more to you than this. Yes, sir. Now, do, do we get this? So young people, you, you, young people listening in, you have to understand that, see, you have somebody, you know, I'm sure there are people in your space right now and you're saying, mm, this one, this man's zone is too much. Or this <laughs> woman's zone is too much. But what they are doing for you is to challenge the excellence in you. Imagine you shutting down that voice of your dad and saying, what's Pythagoras' parents? Let me just keep wasting his time. I'm not in for this. You would have gone for that scholarship ex exam. The opportunity would have surfaced but you would not have been able to face it at on. Absolutely. Because you have ignored the process that would have made you become. I, I love this. You must recognize what is happening to you right now. Everyone is at different faces in their lives. Don't ignore it. Life will throw opportunity at you that will require what you, they're demanding from you today. I love this. I, I just wanted to highlight that. Thanks. Thanks. That was the first ever defining moment i can remember in my life it was that moment everything switched around it was that moment the academic excellence became i embedded it more into my dna not because my dad then began to say to me you have to come first it now became a matter of i had tasted success at a particular level and i knew that it was that level of success was so good the feeling was so good it felt so it made me see myself in a new light not out of pride not out of wanting to lord it over people but from a place of wow so even me can be like this and then it just became my defining moment um, academically it was at that moment that i became an a student and that a student just kind of carried on through gs junior wyek ssc gc i passed my gc in ss2 I think I had seven distinctions or so then. And then it was, then I got to the University of Lagos. It was that same spirit of excellence that then followed me through University of Lagos, graduating with the first class honors, winning multiple awards. My GP at Unilag was 4.89 out of five. So that meant that between year three and year five, I was making A's for five straight semesters across all subjects. And there was not a single B on my results. And that was at the University of Lagos. And you may not understand the implications of what I just said, because it sounds like, yeah, anybody can get an A. Guys, I read estate management. Mm. Estate management is a five-year course, not a four-year course. Five-year course that requires you to take subjects in almost every faculty in the university. Because as estate surveyors and valuers, you're supposed to be knowledgeable in multiple spheres. So you did surveying, you did philosophy, you did use of English, you did economics, you did statistics, you did agriculture, you did almost everything. Because when you're doing, when you get into practice of estate management, all these different spheres of knowledge will come to play into your professional landscape. So we, were, we it was compulsory. We did courses in architecture, did courses in building, in quantity surveying. You had to go everywhere. So if it was like I was protected in my tiny department where my lecturers already knew me as a good student and I would always get an A because again, you have this, um, I call it the network effect of being a good student. You know, when you're a good student and you're within the tiny department because your lecturers already know you as a good student, the chances are that they will always want you to pass or they will always have to shield you somehow because if you're a good student with good character, they will support you. They will shield you. When you, Even if you're not going to pass, there's a way they will try to work it out for you to, to make sure you excel. 
But guys, I'm talking about having to deal with a professor who doesn't know my name and who doesn't care about me. Where my script to get missing? And I had to walk into his class and I was a head in the seas of heads there. 250 students. He was on a tiny whiteboard in front with dim lights, having to take notes. It was under those circumstances that God helped me through with those amounts of distinctions. And I think out of 71 courses I took in university, I think I had 64 A's and seven B's. I never had a C throughout university. In fact, C was an abomination. Wow. No, I no, no, no. You don't see, I don't, it was my standard. You don't see C on any of my grades. Even the B's, I was angry because I had I had now become accustomed to a certain level of excellence that it was impossible for me to operate on a lower mm-hmm. threshold. And even when I crossed over to England for my master's, In 2010, I did a master's in international management at the Henley Business School. The system was so different and I had nine months to to pass and do well that it took me the first three months to learn this new system I had found myself in because what brought you here won't take you there. Um, Maybe someone needs to hear that again. Mm. What brought you here won't take you there. So what I came with from University of Lagos as a local champion And I say this because I saw many people fall along the way. People who had first class coming from Nigeria, they got into the British system here. And the British system was demanding critical analysis. In Nigeria, we were taught to cram and drop very little analytical engagement. Then you walk into a system that says, what is your opinion of what you've just read? And you're like, what do you mean my opinion? My teacher taught me and I've told you what my teacher... No, no, no. If you say what your teacher told you, you're going to get a C or a D or even fail. We want you to critically analyze. And I didn't know anything about critical analysis. I had to learn all of that stuff in three months, but I still ended up with a distinction at, in, the, in the master's level. It was that drive of excellence. And that, that one pivotal moment in 1996 mm-hmm. changed everything. And it just swept wow. across my entire academic career and professional career today. Yeah, this is so good. I, I, I love I, I love that you're going ahead of my questions in some instances, but because I, I'm seeing where, where the journey started. And you tasted something and you wanted to stick to it. It was not enough. You didn't want it to be a one-off experience for you. You wanted it to to be a perpetual experience. So you you zeroed in on it. There was something you were after. There was something driving you. For young people today, you know, people often think that they will just appear. You know, life will just happen and you'll just get there. You know, there's this myopic thinking that I've almost consumed our young population that, you know, you don't have to do much. It's just a stroke of luck. You know, people that are there, it's not as if, you know, they're spectacular. You know, it's just a stroke of luck. Life happened. Is it true? You know, I want you to speak because, you know, sometimes when, you know, we're connecting with younger people and we're speaking to them about certain values that must drive them. They look as if you're talking too much. They look as if, you know, you don't know what you're saying. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, that it's just a stroke of luck. Life happens. You know, we just want to hammer. Let's just make it. Once you can have money, that's it. I want to speak to this, this issue. Wow. Thanks for that. I mean, whoever is listening to this, no great person fell out of the skies. In fact, as the great good old saying goes, success happens when preparation meets opportunity. You can't 
make that equation imbalance by removing the place of preparation. And even if I want to add a little bit, rub a little bit of salt to that um, injury, as I would call it, the preparation could have been going on for years in the backside of nowhere in ways that you may not even be aware of that you are being trained for such a time as you would end up seeing, just like my Pythagoras theorem moment. Let me put another quick experience to this. Um, maybe this is the first time, I, maybe you may, you may not be aware of this yourself, Lara, but there was another defining moment in the universe. I had quite a few, I've had many defining moments in my life, but I'm sharing the ones that I think <laughs> will make someone realize where this is coming from. So from a very young age, from the time I was a child, they used to say that I was a talkative. That's one of the things, one of my different. In fact, my mom would say, Chai, this boy can't talk. <laughs> Today, that same talkativeness is what is putting food on my table because I'm an academic. I lecture, I do public speaking, I coach, I train. All that stuff have become my means of income. The same talkativeness has given me the opportunity to stand before kings and to raise and nurture leaders. But that's another story. They saw it as being talkative. They didn't shut me down. They didn't silence me. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't tell me, oh, you know, um, don't talk again. Yeah, they were. I was just a rabura. I was just a talkative. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. When I got to school as well, it became another hallmark. Everybody wanted to gather around me to hear me talk. I didn't see any reason to it. I didn't think there was anything to it. In fact, there was one inst instance I remembered, JSS 1 or 2. I had given my life to Christ and I had started, you know, teaching and just preaching to my young friends, you know, in school. This was not, nobody told me to do these things. There was just this thing of, I have had this good news. I want to share with people. I remember one day I took a chair and stood under a tree an almond tree. And I started talking. And in less than 15 minutes, over 50 children gathered around me. And I was teaching the word of God and I was praying over them. And I was saying to them, you know, you will all be great. God will bless you. I was just praying for them as I could. In whatever little, I wasn't very eloquent. I was just doing it. When I got to secondary school, um, JS3, I switched schools to another school. Um, I was in Bodhija International School and I switched to a school called Oritamefa Baptist Model School. Now, here is the deal. Those who were in Oritamefa Baptist Model School, where, before I got there, they had been in Oritamefa Baptist School, which was the primary school. So they had already built a bond. And there was, it was like bringing a new fish into the ocean where you had all these existing, you know, fishes, as it were introducing a new fish into the aquarium where you had like, you know, established fishes. When I got in there, I knew that these guys had known each other for not of nine years because this was me in SS1. These guys had been in school together for nine to 10 years. So they knew each other like the back of their hands. And I was a new guy on the block. And I had one, they, I, myself and a few other guys had come in into the school at that time as well. But I noticed something. The moment I got in, whenever I opened my mouth to speak, everybody turned and listened. In fact, as a new guy on the block, what shocked me was that when we did class rep uh, appointment, you know, we're going to choose the class rep, it was myself and two other guys who were popular guys in the space that had been there for 10 years who contested. I beat them hands down. It was, it was, I, I campaigned a little bit. I said a few things, but I beat the guys. And I was like, how is it that this new guy who is apparently a stranger was able to influence 
you know, in, at such a level. Now, this thing I'm saying back to you, I'm reflecting back to you, my meaning making of what happened then. I didn't see anything mm. to it. But every time I had an opportunity to stand before the audience to speak, I would speak and people will say it was convincing. I didn't see anything to it. Every moment, week in, week out, those things began to take shape in my life. When I got to University of Lagos, mm. leadership so, found Those me. were patterns. Those were patterns, yes. Those were patterns. When I got to University of Lagos, the same things continued to happen. I will stand, I will speak, people would listen, and I would influence. I will stand, I will speak, people would listen, and I would influence. That was when I began to realize that number one, if I had such great, if I wielded such great influence with my voice, I could not live my life anyhow. One. Mm. don't ever think you don't have any kind of influence even if it is to your junior ones everybody has a measure of influence in my own case my influence was being manifested through how I conducted myself but most importantly the things I said I, I realized that my words carried weight in fact I remember I said something one day someone went and did it and got them into trouble and I knew that ooh, I need to be careful because if I say things, some people actually believe it and they will run with it. So I had to be very careful. But anyway, that's not where I'm going. Let me tell you the accumulation of that. We then made another defining moment. University of Lagos. <laughs> I was in my final year. I think it was, yeah, it was my final year, year five. And there was this suddenly um, debate competition, university-wide debate competition. They were going to pick they were going to raise a team from across the faculties that would come together to contest in two different... I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was that someone in my faculty, I think a lecturer, had spoken with the head of guidance and someone in the Dean of Student Affairs office. It was just something, you know, again, guys, you just never can tell your... Your recommendation will come from people who have been observing you. At times, opportunities will come to you, not because you put yourself forward for them, but because people who have heard you or who know stuff about you will recommend you. Just like they recommended, you know, the guy called Joseph in the Bible, if you've ever heard of him before, or the guy called Daniel, you know, there's always that power in recommendation. So anyways, I was recommended. And the recommendation resulted into an invitation. I was asked to come. (laughs) <laughs> boy scout motto says be prepared anything can happen preparation and mm-hmm. opportunity meet is what makes success happens okay i was invited this is a true life story i was invited into the office of the i think it was then the deputy vice chancellor of the university of lagos i walked in, into that room and i saw 15 other guys it was a plush office big office I saw 15 other guys, so we became 16. And I was wondering, good Lord, what's going on here? And then the guy looked at us and said, all of you, 16 of you, you know, you know, you all stood in awe and reverence of this big man, this great man you're standing in front of. He said, all of you, 16 of you have been recommended across 16 faculties of this university. And you've all been, you've all been recommended on the fact that on the grounds that you are all apparently great scholars who can articulate themselves in words (laughs) and I was there almost peeing my pants I'm like I didn't bargain for this I came from eating my rice and stew jejeli and then they told me to come somewhere and I'm showing up on a big stage and then the man said today 
we will choose a team of eight. It means eight of you will go. I might go where? What's going on here? The guy said, you have all been selected for the University of Lagos debate competition. You will follow me to the, to the Senate chambers. Ah, I said, Senate what? They matched all of us. <laughs> and we proceeded from the DVC's office into the Senate chambers. We got into the Senate chambers. They sat us, you know the Senate, you know how the Senate could be now. It's a big round table. They sat all of us down. And then they said that the test was simple. They had prepared topics into a box. Each of us will stand up, walk to the box, pick a paper, whatever topic you pick, you will speak impromptu for three minutes and make an argument for or against that thing in the paper. <laughs> I nearly fell off the chair. I said, they've killed me. I, you know, you said your father's people from the village have started chasing me because this one, is this not disgrace? How could, who brought me here? Who told them? Who mentioned my name? I was. I, these were the questions. My life. Who is doing this to me? Because this is not. This is not fair. No time to prepare. Nothing. When it was my turn, I went up, picked up that thing, and like someone who had been skilled in the desert, I opened my mouth and spoke for three minutes. Everybody was looking wow. at me like this. <laughs> when I finished, the DVC said, "We've heard you all." He said. Young man, that was me. You're definitely going through. I'm like, oh, I made the final eight. And then that's how eight of us came to be. And then they split the team. Now watch the split of the team. They split the team. I was the head of my team. That was what they said. They said, you are the head of your team because you performed the best. You are the head of your team. Who did they put in my team? A lady from pharmacy, a lady from maybe medicine, and one lady from... Um, some other subject. You know, the subject, where I'm going at is that I'm reading, I read estate management. I was reading estate management. So we're not your kind of typical, uh, you know, courses that required a lot of talking or articulation. On the other team, we had the best student from mass communication who probably had a radio show. We had one of the most eloquent student union executives who was always known to be an activist. We had um, the, one of the best students in law who was there and they had one other person on their team. So there was that team of four that had professions that required eloquence versus my own team of four that we didn't know where we were coming from. Medicine, pharmacy, estate management and all of that. And that's how they said we should go and prepare. I prepared on the day of the debate, on the day of the debate, televised live, radio station. I remember and I'll never forget this. I stood up, I told my team, I said, one of the forces that would demonstrate unity here is that we all wear the same color. So we wore the same color, blue shirt. I'll never forget this. I will never forget this. Navy blue shirt, navy blue tie, black suit. I told the girls, blue shirt. And another you know, funny thing, everything I wore, I borrowed. Don't ask me, I borrowed it because I didn't have it. I was one that said the blue shirt, but I didn't have it. So I went and borrowed. So I borrowed the shirt and everything else that I wore. You know, The only thing I didn't borrow was the shoe. Um, and we walked into that place, and I remember the, the, there was the panel of judges made up of eminent professors, including, I will never forget this, my professor Ralph Akinfeleye, who was then the head of MASCOM at the University of Lagos. He was the head of the, of the panel. And the man was such an eloquent speaker. He, he had a radio voice, a baritone radio voice. And, uh, and I stood up, and he said, as a first because the topic was university autonomy. Is, is it a plus or a gain? Is it a gain or a deficit to university systems? And I had done research, I had worked with my team, I spoke. 
the guy on the other team who was the head and the champion in Mascom, I'll never forget his name, was, he's a blind chap, walked up to the stage. The hall was packed full, 350 students. When they called him up, the whole hall went agog. This guy went on the mic and spoke with such eloquence that I nearly sank with my only bad accent versus this guy's polished accent. I didn't know what was going to happen. So the guy beat, he, he, he spoke and I felt like the world had come to an end. Hold on, mama. I'm say, and the reason why I'm saying all those details is because you will get the seasons of your life where it will look as if everybody else is better than you, but you don't know what it is you're emanating out of you that mm. people are picking up on. Because when your skill will okay. speak for you, your That's skill will good. not speak your local mm. language. Your skill will not speak your local language. Skill has one language, excellence. Not your Ibado accent, not oh, your so Ijebu accent. Skill yes. has one language. Mm. The language is excellence. So before you beat yourself down and say, I was talking with my Ibado accent, or I was talking about what people are hearing is not your accent. They are seeing the excellence. They're seeing logic. They're hearing things beyond your accent. That's why great people with their accent still stand before kings. Nobody cares about their accent because the content they carry supersedes the accent in their English. <laughs> so that's why you don't need to form American or form British. Just mm. be yourself. Excellence has one language. Skill has one language. Excellence. When this guy spoke, he was the most eloquent across board. In fact, I will never forget this. When the guy left and the second speaker who was meant to support me went on stage, she lost her train of thought and couldn't speak. She froze on stage. She froze, literally froze on stage. She came back to, my, to the seat beside Ooh. us and she was crying. She said, I've let you guys down. I had to start comforting her. I said, you haven't let us down. I said, uh, you know, you, what happened, happened. You froze, you froze. You couldn't deliver. It's okay, my dear. At the end of it all, in the wisdom of God, they said something. They said, now we will ask for three minutes for each lead speaker to come in and fine tune everything else that, I, you know, guys, I always say this to you. There will always be a moment of restitution. There are some opportunities that come and go, mm. but there will always be a second chance. When you have a second chance, you better grab it with your hands and legs and everything else that you have on you. Just, just, just grab it. So when they gave you me three know, minutes... Just, just just him. When they gave me three minutes, mm. I will never forget this. The lady who, who, had, who had failed to deliver tapped me. I will never forget this. These are, these are moments I will never forget. She held my hand. I will never forget. And she said to me, she said, Ade Yinka, it's now in your hands. Hi. I said, this is what you call the weight of leadership. So I stood up, walked to the podium. What I was going to do came to me as I walked to the podium and the strategy was clear. I was listening to my opponents. I had written their central argument and I went on stage and I used facts to dismantle all their, all their key points. I dismantled it. And I looked at the professors on stage and I said, do you not agree that if we go down the path that these gentlemen have proposed, we will, it will lead us into the calamity of your brilliance being locked up. Those were my phrases to them. And they looked at me and said, yes, we agree with you. The tipping point of it all, guys, <laughs> we won that debate. Bottom line, that was the day I realized that the firepower to win is not necessarily in how you know, good the entire team is. Your excellence, when it is time for you to find expression, 
it to give you the platform. In fact, excellence will trump mm. all those other things you are putting your eyes on. So be good at what you do. But hey, I didn't get to that point by accident. I told you it started from home when I was a babbling child and they said I was talkative. So when I started talking in primary school, people were saying to me, you're a talkative. So when I got to secondary school, I was losing my voice. So when I got to university, all those moments of years of training accumulated into yeah. that one moment where everything changed for me. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Well, this, is, this is so good. This is so good. I'm sure parents are listening in, young people are also listening in, and, and they, you're, getting, you're getting light. You know, something you, draw, you drummed in our ears that I want to just reinforce is that, see, the, 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 the sound or the voice of skill is excellence. That's the language. It's not enough. See, your family background irrespective. Once you are skilled at something, so there's something you're skilled at, notify it, you know, identify it, recognize it. The law of recognition. You recognize that you had a gift in speaking and you were, you were able to, you know, continue to own that skill. And you own that skill to the point where it delivered excellence. And today, all of it accumulated into who you are. So you can't say, see, you, you just don't appear, you know, now you've answered that question in such a powerful way. You just don't arrive on the scene. It's not a stroke of luck. Life did not just happen. It was something, it was one thing leading to another, recognizing that this is my gift. This is my skill. And you own, I love it. Now, this will take me to my next question. Many people, especially young people, blame so many things. Some people say it's because of the family I was born into. I'm sure you've heard songs in Nigeria these days. You know, they will say they want to, that they wish Dangote was their father. They wish that Otedola was their uncle. You know, so many. And, and, and you know, we live in a world, especially in Nigeria. I don't know if it's, it's, it's true for other parts of the world. But in Nigeria that I live in, and I see young people. Many young people have been shaped every day by the dominant voice they hear. And I realized that the dominant voice that they hear now is the voice of music, the voice of this young man in the entertainment world, comedy, music, and they're speaking to them. They're speaking, drumming into their ears, values that does not really accumulate into the life that they're supposed to live. So you see young people sit down and you hear them blame the society, blame government, blame their parents, blame their heritage, blame their state of origin. I want you to share with us in your experience how all these things, because, you know, the, the, the testimony I have of you, I know the going was not smooth. It was rough. I, I, you know, you shared with us a little bit of, of your story of the family background. You were born into a polygamous home. You know, you had a dad in, 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 in Lagos. You were in Ibadan. And also, you know, I'm aware of a little of your journey when you were in Lagos particularly. And you were stay, living in with your stepmom. The kind of experiences you had. And how you were able to come out of all that. And still step into the kind of excellence your life is commanding to you today. I want you to share that with us. 
Uh, thanks very much, uh, Lara, for that question. So, I mean, to so someone here who might be listening and the thought has ever crossed your mind, maybe if I was born in the UK, maybe if um, Otedola was my dad and all of that, forget all that stuff. That is all nonsense. Um, the beauty of your life has been, God is a grand weaver. He has, an, he has this, on, this characteristic of being able to take people. In fact, the joy of your story is in how you emerged from where you were placed. Just how the same central figure of the Christian faith today being Christ was born in a lowly manger. Def we definitely use the phrase lowly manger. We use the word lowly to qualify the manger to let people understand that it wasn't the place that a human being was meant to be in the first place. And through Bethlehem, a slum, a ghetto, through to glory that we now know him, you know, sitting at the right hand of the Father and all that and all that and all that. I'm, I'm sorry if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this. And it's just one of the easiest examples I could use. And there are many, many stories out there for people that have gone from grass to grace. The point being that your background, I always use this, you know, this phrase, your background wasn't meant to put your back on the ground, number one. So let's get that straight. The fact that you were born in a ghetto, in a slum, or into a turbulent family, it's all part of the design that makes your training, makes your development, makes your formation as best, as great as it can be. Let, in my own case, let me tell you what, I, what happened to me. I spent eight years of my life with my stepmother. Before I went there, you know the way the tension in polygamous families can be now. You know, everybody believes that the other party is an evil person um, and that, they, you know, the love is not there. The love is just not there. And this is true. You can feel it. You know, you walk into the room, you know you're not wanted. But, you know, because the man of the house had said, you must be here you knew that you know this marriage would be a forced one of having to live with someone whom you know doesn't necessarily fancy you doesn't like you much and having to live or cohabit or coexist with a person in the same space lots of friction definitely loads of things that could be like you know deliberate forms of aggression microaggression um, major aggression in some cases you know it is just the way the, the human nature is. Through all those difficult moments, I remember I said this to a few young men I was speaking to recently, I will always be grateful to God that I met my stepmother. You know why? Because typically people would say that people like that, um, you know, are bad people. You call them bad. I call them God's messengers to train me. Because the best of a human being emerges Thank through you know. adversity walks through adversity if you don't walk through adversity you can never emerge as pure gold okay fire is necessary in purification if you are not fired through high degrees of temperature you will never be purified if you were a child to dangote or tedola as some mm. of you were thinking and many of you don't even know what they do to their children to train them by the way but if you think that that would be the end of your problem because your dad had money you've missed the road, you've missed the bus. Now, in my case, <laughs> when I was living with my stepmother, there were a few things that I discovered that changed my life. So first of all was that my father was giving me 100 naira a day to go to university, 100 naira. At the peak of when, you know, he added inflation cost to it, he made it 200 naira, but that was towards the end of my stay at the university. But when I was in my, in my first year, second year, third year, 
I was on a hundred naira a day budget. Now, for those of you who understand what that means, I was living in a, in a slum area called the Wire, even though we were on the other side of the slum that was a little bit cleaned up. But just the fence, boundary of the fence, my house, you see the ghettos and you see the, you know, you see the rubbish. But, you know, there was, we're living in a bit of a cleaner part of, of, that, of that slum community. hundred naira a day meant two things. Number one, if I ever took Okada, to campus then okada from my house to campus was 50 naira so if i took okada to campus and i took okada back i'm done that's all the money i have and i know i need to eat because i'm going to campus eight o'clock and i'm back seven o'clock or six o'clock so how do i eat so what i then began to do was this i began to trek to school 45 minutes every morning and trek back so i could save the money to eat those are some of the decisions i took when I started my little business on campus, it was, I sold water. Um, I did consultancy. I was the guy who was repairing all my lecturer's laptop. You know what you call any work, but I did what you call any work. I did any work on campus because the, the fact that I had limited resources brought out the entrepreneur in me and I had to step up the gas and had to do things. And I learned through that process. Now, in the midst of all of these things, when my stepmother and, the, and, and you know, in the in the picture people would think oh this woman you know bad person also no 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 i don't see my my stepmother as a bad person i don't see her as an evil person i like i said it changed my mindset being under her tutelage i i use the word tutelage very deliberately because you might think waking you up in the morning telling you to go and wash all the bathrooms in the house you know feeding you certain types of food or curtailing certain types of um, benefits you say it's wickedness I say it is training. In retrospect, mm -hmm. I switched everything around and said it was training because when I needed to abase, I had learned how to abase. Remember, I was coming from the under the protective shield of my mom because we all want to be in a place of comfort. Mm -hmm. Comfort is the enemy of your progress. Mm -hmm. The reason why you are not making progress is because you are too comfortable. Because there is always somewhere to turn to for help. There is food when your mom cooks it. There is so, so when I came now, Mama Lara, and I think um, I say Mama Lara because she was the mama that, and where, where we served the SCF. And thankfully, we have the president of our, during our time, um, Brother Simon Peter Olga, on the call as well. You know who is joining. So thank you so much, sir, for coming across. It's really a pleasure to to have you. We all worked together. And you knew what the conditions were in 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 the in in in, in the family house, as we we'll call it, where we all live. I didn't have, mm -hmm. I had a job. I couldn't even afford to go to work every day, because the money I didn't get a salary from the work, and and those who, who were close to me knew that. I couldn't. I wasn't. I was working in an estate firm. I couldn't even rent or sell a single property throughout my stay. One year working for a company, I didn't bring one penny into that company. The CEO of that company, which who still called me two days ago, by the way, we're still very close friends. <laughs> he would he would always say that he enjoyed having me, even though I didn't sell one thing. So can I turn that into another learning moment? At times, the value people will get from you is not in what you are bringing to the table financially, but how your personhood and your character brings value to that organization. There is always going to be more than one ways of adding value to an organization. One way is if you sold things, but another way you can add value is to be resourceful, to be useful, to be valuable, to be yeah. a good employee. Those are other types of value that even though you are only able to bring 100 million or 100 million or 1 million or 200,000 to the table, 
they will still recognize you. I remember my boss throughout my stay at in, at, in, in Abuja then, we were living in Yanya, Maraba then. At that point, there were three occasions he visited that he gave me, I think, 20 or 30,000 naira just out of his pocket to say, boy, I just want to encourage you. I will never forget. Now he's written a book. He's, he's asking me to help him read the book and edit it. it we, we, we hold each other to very high esteem. You know, that, that was some, something that happened between me and my boss. But that's an, another benefit of having the foundations of diligence, excellence, and integrity. Now, when I lived or when we lived in Maraba, mm -hmm. remember we paid 3,000 naira to the family house that's sort of a mini rent. Um, which was then also like what you used to get money, food, which was all fantastic things. I mean, yeah. you, it was amazing. 9,700, yes, 9,700. So I had 6,000 left for the rest of the week. And transport from Maraba to um, city centers, we call it, I think was 200 naira or something funny. Well, I think it was 200 or, yeah. yeah, something like that. If you do 200 times two, 400, and multiply that by 20, that's 8,000. So meaning if I went to work every day for the month, I was in red. In fact, from transport alone, we've not added feeding and everything. So I was living, I was living a very minimalist life. It was the training I had with my stepmother that made me survive orientation camp and life after camp. So that woman was a blessing to me because mm. then, we thought that, okay, you know, stepmother, they always want to hold you down and all of that. But the other side of it is this, guys, that God has a deliberate training plan for you and I because of where he sees you going. The training you get in this season is useful in the next season. He trained me in Pythagoras theorem. I did the test. He trained me in speaking. I went on to become a debate champion. He trained me in the lessons and hardship of life. I went into Abuja to survive because he knew that he was going to instill spiritual values in me that I needed when I was coming to the UK because I came to the UK after service. He knew that if I did not have my one year of wilderness with great men like Papa Samuel Peter with yourself, who taught me spiritual things, in whom and through whom I began to understand spiritual principles. The first time I had a person prophesy was when I was in camp and I had you guys praying and you guys were speaking and saying something. I was like, oh, oh boy. He said, what is this? What's going on here? I've never, what, what is it? What's that? You know, prophesy, what, what, what's that? And I had to learn spiritual things. It was because God knew that he was bringing me to a country that was spiritually mm. cold. I needed a one-year boot camp in spiritual principles that was going to keep me, sustain mm. me when I came abroad. Every season of life that was to come, God had the previous season to train. Now, he said, instead of blaming, have a correct perception concerning your season. He saw the, the time it was father getting a hundred naira as an undergraduate. I don't know how many people can survive that. Hundred naira as an undergraduate to school, to the university, and back to the house as not punishment, but a season to learn how to be a base. Do you understand it? So until you have the correct uh, perception now about your season, you won't be able to maximize that season and get the, the requisite preparation that season has to offer. So that's what I'm getting from this. So all the preparations of his different seasons became relevant for the opportunities that will open up to him in the future. And he was able to use the preparation to lock into those seasons and he had success. 
So success did not happen to him blaming systems and structures, blaming family structure, blaming why did my father marry two wives? Why did my why, why do I have to take a at school? Why do I have to work in a place where I'm not paid? But rather he came into the season to understand what am I being prepared for? What are the principles and the skills I must learn now in this season that I must take along? So I'm not exiting the season ignorant of what I'm getting from the season. So I'm in, in that season to get something. I'm not leaving the season empty. I'm getting into that season, drawing out, milking out everything that is relevant for my journey in this season. So I just really wanted to e- emphasize that. So I'll, I'll allow you to continue on that line of thought. But let me just quickly say this. Many people view mistakes. Mm-hmm. Now, you've spoken to us a lot about perception. Mm-hmm. Enter each season of your life with a correct perception. Mm-hmm. You didn't see your stepmother as being wicked. You saw her as a tutor mm-hmm. of that season of your life. Now, people talk about life and say, okay, you know what? You, you must run through life error proof you must not miss, make mistakes you know just just make sure you're careful you know you do what you ought to do and all that what's your view about making mistakes and how does it define a young person it is normal uh, making mistakes is, is absolutely normal um i think the type of mistake here is what we may need to do a little bit of um, you know com- have a little bit of conversation around but mistakes are normal um, no one is perfect. The fact that you are not perfect means you are prone to mistakes, you're prone to error. But I think the way I define mistakes are missteps that lead to learning moments. That's my simplest definition of mistakes, missteps that result into learning moments. Um, the reason why I couple both of those together in, in defining mistakes is that when you make a mistake, you've done something you ought not to have done, but it shouldn't end there. You should learn as a result of that and change or improve or be better. So mistakes are effectively learning moments. Yes, those who come from the school of thought of being mistake-proof, they've taken the message to the extreme. But where they're coming from, to give it a little bit of balance, is that there are certain mistakes that are avoidable if I am open to learning from the lives of other people. There are avoidable mistakes. The ones that I find, you know, say appalling are the ones that are avoidable. So let me give a good example of an avoidable mistake. Um, In my family, I had uncles who took to drinking and smoking very early on. I saw that it was their way of, you know, enjoying life. But then I realized that it cut their lives short. They didn't live to fulfill potential. They died, you know, pretty much in in states that I would never even desire for an enemy. You know, the smoking resulted into things. The drinking resulted into diabetes, um, you know, all sorts of things. It was terrible, terrible, terrible things. The question is this. If you had the model of a life who had practiced a principle that resulted into an undesired end, isn't it madness for you to repeat the same principle, hoping you'll get a different result? And I chose the word madness deliberately there because it is foolishness to see how a life has ended. And you see that obviously this is destruction, this is perdition. 
and you still choose the lifestyle and the principles and practice the same principles that resulted into that destruction. Those ones are the ones I call avoidable mistakes. Avoidable. Avoidable mistakes. Why? Because you have seen someone else do it and you've seen how it resulted to them. But let me put the balance to what I just said. You said something earlier, Lara, that I think is important. The most powerful way to ingrain an ideology in the minds of any human being is through the power of visible modeling. What you see, you become. What you see, you become until, I have to put an until, what you see, you become until you create an alternative reality that you want to see that could change or alter the pattern that you're seeing. What you see, you become. So it's easy for you to replicate mistakes in the lives of other people because you have not interrogated the assumptions of that mistake and then challenged yourself to create an alternative. So let me give a good example because you spoke about blaming the system. I'll give you a good example of this. You had a father who was a drunkard who beat up your mom. Let me say this to you. If you're a person in this, listening to this, if your dad was a drunkard who was a womanizer who beat up their mom, the chances are very high that you also be a drunkard and a womanizer because that's the reality you've been used to. That dysfunction has become your new normal because you grew up Mm. seeing it every day and it has become an ingrained in your system as the way things ought to be. Your life will follow that pattern because that's what you have seen and that's all you have known. And so when you begin to replicate that pattern of lifestyle, you are walking in the footsteps of someone whose life has showed you what it is. So regardless of what the outcome is, you are going into that pattern because it is the only thing you know, but it may not be the right thing. The only thing you know may not be the right thing. So what do I mean by that? Therefore, you need to find a way to challenge things and create what I call alternate realities for yourself. Alternate realities are now at the point where you're saying to yourself, okay, hang on, people. My father drank, beat my mommy up, slept with other women. I'm now in school. I realize I love drinking and I love womanizing. Am I not repeating what my father did? Am I not towing the pathway of this pattern, this life? Then at that point, when you get to a point where you are angry enough to seek an alternate reality, to find another pathway that challenges that life pattern, debunks it and gives you something else to begin to look at. This is where the place of role model comes in. This is where the place of an encounter with God comes in. This is where a place of reading books comes in. And you begin to challenge your reality and begin to say, what my father did doesn't have to be my reality. It's at that point you deviate from the path of avoidable mistakes and you begin to walk into a path that will begin to help you. Now, that on one hand is what I call avoidable mistakes. Now, there are mistakes you make. I call them stumbling errors because you are working in a path that no one has walked before in your life or around you. You stumble over things because there is no light. There is insufficient light. Light here could be knowledge, insight, revelation to guide you through the path you stumble. But when you stumble, you pick up yourself and keep moving. And what then becomes your learning moment is when you're walking on this path, there is a ditch here. There is a pothole here. There is a trap here. You're stumbling through it. Now, the beauty of that is because you have walked that path and you have stumbled, you can become the light in the life of another person. And that's where we have the role of mentoring 
men going on a tour because you have walked the path and you are taking them on the same tour so you become a tour guide mentors are tour guides walking people through a path that they have been through and they are saying to you this is this landmark here and that is that portal there and that is that problem there now those mistakes you make that you learn for yourself you can see there are mistakes you can recover from why because you are on a journey to a destination and you only stumbled and fell and made those mistakes along the way what you shouldn't do whether you are repeating avoidable mistakes or making stumbling mistakes is to allow mistakes to define your person okay. you are not a mistake you are not a mistake the challenge with mistakes is that once we make them we superimpose the consequence on our identity and label ourselves as the mistake okay. the activity failed you did not fail in fact you are yet to fail in life the only point where you fail in life is the point where you die and you didn't fulfill anything but as long as you are breathing this air you are not yet a failure you may be towing the path of failure but you can be snatched out of the path of failure by doing things differently by alternate by creating your own alternate reality by seeking dimensions of knowledge insight wisdom and experiences that could change your trajectory okay so please don't make yourself an error and let me also you know i just as as just speaking an example just came to my mind 18 year old girl 15 year old girl you got pregnant hmm. because that's now taking a practical because some people may be listening to this and be saying does this guy really understand the kind of mistakes i've made mm. you got pregnant at the age of 15 you had your daughter at the age of 16 or you had your son at the age of 16 or you impregnate someone at the age of 15 or 16 what do you mean i've already made a life altering mistake yes some mistakes will happen and they can alter your life but those mistakes still don't make you a mistake what they what they've just done now is you have a child you're responsible for and trust me that child is in god's plans anyways all that is demanding of you now is that i always say this to single parents when i see young single parents who are who say well you know life and all that but no 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 you made a mistake you got pregnant fine what that has done for you is done two things for you one god has given you a gift you need to cherish and when you have a gift to cherish it increases responsibility it increases leadership that child has come to train you on how to love how to care how to be responsible how to nurture you will grow up quicker than your friends who haven't had any and i'm not saying anybody should go and start getting pregnant i'm only trying to help you make sense of what you think is an error that mistake has made you has shaped you because that mistake as you call it and i dare to reverse it that it was not a mistake because the chances are that you may start to label that child as a mistake the child is not a mistake because the child sat yeah. in was was somewhere in heaven you interrogated the process that called this child forth the child was not a mistake you are not a mistake so what is happening here is that you have made a mistake you have made a misstep that misstep should result into learning moments for you it will help you grow it can alter your life but it doesn't destroy your life it is when you consistently do things and in fact some might tell me what if you make a mistake that gives you maybe like you get hiv in the process fine you now have the hiv the point is how do you turn that into a testimony that can help other people along the way so again everything can be repurposed but what you must avoid by every means is to allow the mistake define you as a mistake you 
are not a mistake and you will never be a mistake because you are always in God's plans. And let me also say this to wrap up before I hand over to you back, Lara. Even when we choose to go down our own pathway and we choose to deviate from the path of truth and right, and some of us may have been rebellious and we have rebelled against the path that maybe our parents set for us because we thought they didn't know anything and it resulted into some consequence and all of that. Even then, God can, God will, and God always, because he's a grand weaver, still takes those mistakes, turns them into wonderful testimonies. There are some stories you will never hear today if they didn't make some mistakes in their teenage years. I kid you not. There are some lessons, there are some, uh, there are some, there are some things that you will not hear of today. There are some human beings on this planet today that you will never listen to if they didn't have a credibility or they didn't have the scar to show. So when you have a mistake, your mistake becomes your, your credibility to stand on a platform and speak to certain groups of people because you will never be the only person to have made that mistake. And you will not be the last person to make that mistake. But the question is, how do you then become a beacon of hope for people who may fall or stumble into that mistake? Maybe because yeah. circumstances around them did not provide enough insight for them to avoid that mistake. Okay, this is, this is so good. Because, you know, your definition of mistake, let me start from there. You said mistakes are actually missteps that lead to learning moments. So in your journey, what you should... What you should avoid is making avoidable mistakes. Learn from the lives of people around you. Learn from people, things around you and people around their journey and say, okay, you know what? This, I, I, if I walk this path, I'm already because of the life of this person, I won't walk that path. But, you know, one thing you highlighted that is so strong is Make it a learning moment. How the misstep must lead you to a learning moment. So as a young person, you are not doomed because you made a mistake. When you, you, now, you now put yourself in a position of, so you must take it as a learning moment that you have engaged in. And, and that's, I, I love that. And this question, I'm sure by now you know this is in the heart my nature and beat question. Moral decadence. There's moral decadence. You, you, if you hear the stories about young people, the things that they are, they are doing, the lives they're living, it's, you know, it, it breaks my heart. Truly. You know, good morals doesn't seem to be in vogue anymore. And if it's, it's not in vogue, it's not trending. What is trending now is, in fact, we don't need to start talking about them. So many, you know, things that are not just right. So, you know, in fact, you know, you're just trying to pick a choice between what is um, bad and what is convenient. So it's no longer a battle of what is good and what is bad. It's what is convenient, what is, what, what, what is acceptable as at now, and what is bad. So, and young people are facing that situation every day. I want you to give us a background and a breakdown. So moral so dear, you shared some with us, but I want you to speak to some of them deliberately. What experiences in your life helped you come up with this value? Because you are highlighted for us because I'm so so interested because now we, we've heard stories of, of people that actually started started out life and you know they are doing one or two things. At so at, at what point? Do you say, you know, 
your values should not be separated from your person. So it's not, you're not, you're not, you're not doing eye service. You're not trying to please people. This is just who you are. Um, fantastic question. Um, that's a good point. So um, crisscross the seasons of life. There'll be moments where you will need to pick up these moral values. I call them the values acquisition stage of life, even though <laughs> What I'm about to say, I like everyone to hear me and hear me well. There are there is what we call imposed values. There is deliberately acquired values, and there are unconsciously acquired values. Can I say that again? There are imposed values. Those imposed values could be the ones that give were given to you by your parents. They imposed some of these values on you. Growing up, they imposed them on you. You had to go to church. You had to do this. You had to read your book. They were imposing certain values in you. You can't do this with other people. You can't talk to people like that. Those are imposed values. Imposed values should typically emerge from or through parenting, should, or from your interactions with people that are supposedly meant to be in charge of your nurturing and your growth. And I do understand that not everybody has that privilege. As you begin to grow a little bit older, you have the values that you acquire yourself. These are the ones that you went to the market and picked yourself. You picked them because for some reason, maybe you saw it in somebody, you picked it up, you wanted it, you desired it, you then acquired those values. And that's another thing. So the, the, uh, the beautiful thing about acquired values is that we tend to see them in exemplars we cherish or people we respect or honor, and then we go deliberately after them. Or we read a book or we do, we, we do something else or go to, a, to, go to a, a, a camp. In my own case, one of the most defining moments of my acquired valued values season was in the year 2000 when I was invited to a camp at the International School Ibadan. Um, I spoke with the, with the founder and originator of that camp late last year, and she was so excited. And she was telling me how she would always tell people 20 years later, that was the first time that that camp held in year 2000 of my story. Um, in that camp meeting, as I would call it, it was a weekend long camp. It was a week long camp program. We got it on Sunday. We left the following Saturday. On Wednesday night, they showed us a particular documentary series called Epidemic. And Epidemic took a deep dive into the world of sexually transmitted diseases. For the first time in my life, I saw how gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV AIDS, how it ravaged people. It was a documentary that was put together from across Africa. And the, and the title and the title of that of that thing was called epidemic I, for me to even remember the name you could see that it made an imprint on me when we finished watching they interviewed the people of course that were suffering from these different diseases you could see some of them in obvious pain they were showing us their genitals it was a very graphic you know documentary i remember for like two weeks i couldn't sleep well because it really scarred me to see that people were going through that. But when many of them were telling us about how they were living flippant lifestyles, sleeping around and having multiple sex partners and doing all sorts of nonsense around, they were telling us, some of them were into drugs and you know, some of them were into all sorts of things, how they didn't realize that they were towing a path of moral decadence that was going to cost them their lives. 
Because at the end of the documentary, I think they started telling us that this person has died after the interview a few weeks later, this person died. So I was looking at somebody who was living, who was able to share their testimony, but a few weeks later had died as a result. It really, really scarred me. But more importantly, I resolved. I said to myself, this is not a matter of my mother telling me don't go around sleeping with girls. This is a matter of I choose not to do it anymore. This is not even about the Bible says, because again, that's where we have problems. So people say they are forcing us in church or they are saying to us that the Bible says you should not commit adultery and therefore I hate what my pastor is saying, therefore I'll go and say, no, 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 no. You don't sleep around for the sake of your pastor to impress them. You don't sleep around to carry your virginity as a trophy. That's all nonsense. You don't sleep around for the sake of yourself and your generations. That's why you don't sleep around. Apart from the big thing, if you're a child of God to say, I want to please God. Guys, epidemic is real. Now you can then come back to me and say, Yinka, you've come again. You know, medicine has advanced. You can deal with these things medicinally. May you never have to take drugs to manage your life for the rest of your life. I just pray that prayer for you. May you never have to go through the pain of managing a sickness or having to deal with the repetitive illness. Science is good. Science is advancing. Science is great. But isn't it better to have a healthy lifestyle that wouldn't even make you need to go to to the hospital in the first place? Isn't that a wiser pathway to follow? So that in that instance for me was one of those moments where I said, in terms of, you know, dealing with the opposite sex, I had seen it and I had I had seen what one consequence may be. I know we live in the age where moral looseness is there. Everybody, you know, sexual purity is not necessarily something anyone values anymore. People have made mistakes. And if you're listening to me and you have made mistakes, please don't feel condemned. Don't feel condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. What I believe, I also believe in what we call secondary virginity, which is you deciding at the moment to say, I will stop following this pathway from today and I will seek all the help I can to make sure that that what I did in the past stays there and I can move on and build a future for myself that is clean, pure and predicated on principle. So that moral value of being um, chased, you know, from in my dealings with the opposite sex was crafted in 2000 by one experience. It was a deliberately acquired value. I had imposed values, deliberately acquired values. Then I had the subconsciously acquired value. Now, when I say subconsciously applied, you spoke, <laughs> Lara, to music and to, um, you know, those things. You know, the amazing thing, Lara, is this. What many of us don't understand is that I spoke to you about the power of visible modeling. But the power of media, arts, and entertainment is this. That words, once released, is called information, an inflow that causes a formation. You become what you listen to. You become what you hear the most. What you see, what you hear the most. They are the ones. They are the things we call the gateways to your soul. There are a few gateways to your soul. Your sight and your hearing. Those are the two most powerful gateways to your soul. Okay, so when you hear certain things consistently over a period of time, they inform some, they form something inside of you. You may want it, you may not want it, but it is formed. It is unconsciously acquired because you did not realize that there is what we call subliminal programming that was happening behind the scenes as a result of certain information you are that's why you need to pay attention to the music you listen to the movies you watch and the things you you do some of you may some of you on this call may have been in situations where you watched a movie and you saw someone do something or you watch certain types of movies imagine if you were into watching certain types of erotic movies it is not going to be impossible that you'll soon start getting into pornography masturbation 
and then wanting to practice it on on the opposite sex and and the rest is history you didn't deliberately say i want to start sleeping around you started seeing it in all those movies those raunchy scenes Mm -hmm. heightened your curiosity and then you began to have this subliminal programming you discover that you start wanting to fast forward or rewind scenes and watch sex scenes again once you start to get to that point after my years of training with young people and through my personal experiences i understand that that was where the subliminal programming began to happen Mm -hmm. when i started when i got into the world of pornography it was through subliminal programming. Someone in my house brought a pornographic tape home, played it. I was a chap at the age of 10. I didn't understand what was happening. I saw it. It changed me. Mm. It just it just changed me. Now, I didn't have the money to go and rent the same tape because I was still young. But let me tell you something that happens. When I called it unconsciously acquired values, the amazing thing about those values and every form of value is that they have the capacity to stay dormant in you until circumstances activate them. So what happened was that I didn't know that that experience, Mm. I'd forgotten about it years later when I had money and I could start affording to go to the movie theater, to the video, um, video clubs, as we call them back then. I remember I walked into the video club one day and I saw movies and then I saw a case box that said adult movies. It was closed. I walked in there. I opened it. And when I started seeing the casing, something came back inside of me. That was not the type of movie you saw at the age of 10. That's how I started renting pornographic movies. It was subliminally, it was programmed inside of me at a young age. I didn't know what I had acquired. So it created an appetite absolutely created an appetite for that type of stuff but thank god for the power of of the cross thank god for the power of alternate realities and thank god that i quickly realized when i saw (laughs) this thing is going to destroy me that then i said nah 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 nah. i have to stand against this this is this is wrong so again here i'm not a holy person okay i'm not here to say that i'm the guy who had it all together and everything was just nice and good so talking about mistakes that was one major mistake i made in my life but that mistake has not defined me the moment it began to dawn on me i started hearing stories just in the in the thick of my in my 20s started hearing stories of how men who were addicted to pornography how it was destroying their marriages i said this is impossible because my logic was uh, you know congee body as we say in nigeria let me you know i'm a young person i don't want to sleep around let me just you know find a way to let out the pressure when i get married my wife will satisfy all my sexual needs and i'll be fine you know and i started hearing grown men who were married that this thing was destroying their lives i started hearing people who started having health consequences as a result of practicing i was like good lord what's going on here as a young person those checkpoints began to trigger in me you are going down the path of destruction this is an avoidable mistake you're going down the path of destruction it was at that point something tripped inside of me that i now said okay now i realize that this thing that was acquired so again this is where i'm going you can acquire values unconsciously but there is what we call a value gateway system some mechanism that helps you even veto the values you have acquired to check how you can get rid of the wrong values and retain the right values. And that's how maturity comes. Maturity is the process Mm -hmm. of vetoing yourself, letting go of what needs to be let go of and embracing only what needs to be embraced. It is at that point that you're growing. In fact, if you are not constantly evolving in your value system, there are core values you will never let go of. But as your seasons change, you may need to begin to 
pay more attention to certain values mm -hmm. or the manifestation of certain values because they could go ahead and tri trigger certain things, undesirable results. At that point, when I found out that this thing was going to destroy me, then I began to, in fact, I remember when I was dating my wife, she was then my fiance. I told her, I said, listen, I said, this was one thing that I struggled with growing up. As a teenager, I began to struggle here. When he became the man, and, and we had this open conversation, and I was laughing. I said, you can imagine that I had to go through that because I had to make her my accountability partner. I had to say certain things to her. I had to make her understand certain things where I was coming from. It was all part of the battle scar, and it was all part of the victory. When I had my total victory over it, I was smiling and laughing because I said, the victory over this thing is just incredible. How do you know you have won? How do you know you have won? You know you have won when the availability or the access to that thing, though is prevalent around you, you will still not touch it with a, with a, with a two-inch pole. The reason why I know that mm. I'm not a drunkard or I'm not into alcohol is that right now, I have alcohol stores surrounding me. I live in London here. My alcohol stores around me, they are like maybe 20 that surround me. I've never walked into one to buy. There's a cigarette around me. I've never mm. walked into buy. There are places where you could ask for a girl to come and sleep with you. God forbid, by the grace of God, I will never go there to ask for that kind of thing. The reason why I know I'm, I'm walking in liberty and freedom is because those things don't even call my name. They don't attract me. At that point, right now, I have access to the internet 24-7. If God forbid, you go and sit on the, lock yourself up in one room somewhere, you go onto the internet and start watching pornography because there's access 24-7, beautiful internet self that you can stream, <laughs> you know, fast-paced internet. You, once you know that the access or availability to the resources that can result into something is there for you and you still will not touch it with a two-feet pole, that is when you've achieved victory. Your victory mustn't be temporary. It has to be permanent, meaning every time. Oh, this is so good. You have to be victorious. It has to be permanent. Yeah. So I won't walk yes. into a hotel. Ah, in a hotel room, I have access. You see, mm. in my hotel room, when I travel, I travel a lot. Will my wife be at home wondering what is he watching on TV? Because when you go to hotel rooms, you have adult TV stations somewhere there. You can go and watch. I have internet on my phone. I can watch. But the moment I knew I've overcome is that by the grace of God, they don't appeal to me. I will never touch them with a two-inch pole. My victory came years ago. It was a very serious walk against something that I knew was an enemy of my future. And let me just add this as a final caveat. Until you mark that thing as an enemy and define it as a seed of destruction, you will never overcome it. The moment you are still finding an excuse mm. to accommodate it, my mommy slept with many men. Okay. I saw it around me. The moment you are still finding an excuse to accommodate it, you are not ready for victory. It is until you mark it as a seed of destruction, period. That's when your victory starts to come. So no excuses. Nope. No blame game. No blame game. You Not mark it. You zero in on it. And you make sure that it expunged out of your life. Yeah. You will this make mistakes so, along the way. You might find yourself drifting back and forth. But what matters is that you are not drifting back and forth and still saying to yourself, I'm only human after all. Let me just uh, manage my life. Whatever you manage will still destroy you. Oh, this is so this is so good. This is not just message to the young people, this message to everyone. Because this this you know, we have milestones in our lives that we, we, we get to, and we still have to revisit some of these things. We still have to sit down, go back to the drawing board. I want to run to two questions that were sent in to us. So somebody asked a question about the changing times and the global um privilege epidemic. And um, the person is asking about 
you know, the aspirations that young people have about their lives, the future, and how all this has affected it. How can they overcome and cope? That's a good question. Um, it's a really good question. Can I say something to anyone who, who dares to listen to this? Your aspirations are still valid, period. Should we begin from there? If you have aspirations, or if you have, um, I have to be very careful, not assuming everyone has aspirations. If you have aspirations, your aspirations are still valid. So let me say to you this way, your what is still valid. What the pandemic has distorted is the how. So this is where you need to learn a lesson that the method of attaining or as achieving your aspirations may have to change because of the disruption of the pandemic. Don't stay too fixated on a particular method at the expense of the aspiration. Great leaders will tell you that when you create a strategic plan for your future, a strategy is pretty much a long-term plan, a long-term plan with a definite step-by-step -step process of how to get there. That's what you mean by strategy. Now, when you have a strategic plan for your life, there is what we call intended strategy. Now, intended strategy is what takes you from a deliberate strategy to an achieved strategy. Intended strategy, meaning the way I intended it to be. That was what took me from my from point A, which was my desired strategy, or my deliberate strategy to point B which is, so my deliberate strategy, beg your pardon, is what takes me from intended strategy to acquired strategy. So what I intended as my strategy, and if I'm able to use my deliberate strategy of what I will define as what I think will get me there, and to point B, my acquired strategy, that's fine. But again, people who know strategy will tell you that there's what we call waste strategy or void strategy. What a void strategy means is saying that circumstances could come that would challenge what you would have called your own deliberate strategy. And if it challenges your deliberate strategy, you evolve into what you call an emergent strategy. What that is saying to you is that you are not boycotting the future. You are not boycotting the vision you have. You are boycotting or you are transforming your method. In fact, let me even lay, put a layer of complexity on it. In fact, for some of you, your vision has to even change. So let's not even deceive ourselves. That end goal you've always had may have to even change. So I'm speaking to people who are on two levels. Those who have aspirations that are still valid regardless, but need to focus on the how. The what stays the same. The how as the pandemic has taught us the how. So let me give you a good example. You have always dreamt in your life. I want to be a guy who offers tech skills training to young people. And the way you've always imagined it is I will buy a building somewhere in, in Abuja. I will furnish it up to 10 floors, this and that and that. And then you start to bring people in from all over, teach them machine learning and all that and all that. Now COVID, COVID has happened. People are now creating online schools like never before. So the vision is still the same. The method has changed. The newest um, social media app that is making waves around the world today is called Clubhouse. I don't know if any of you have heard of Clubhouse. Clubhouse combines the competencies of having your own radio station and a podcast into one and makes it it's audio only. It's an audio-only social media app. And every person that is popular in this world is on that social media app as we speak now. People are creating their own clubhouses. Your own clubhouses is like your own radio channel. You will start your own conversation anytime you want to. People will join in. They will listen to you speak. You will bring panels in. People will hear you talk. The method has changed. Knowledge dissemination methods have changed. 
Now you are saying you want to go to um, school abroad. Yes, go study, that's still a valid dream, but there are now many ways of studying abroad. I know you want to travel, you will still travel, but what about if you can start doing something now to acquire foreign education before you can still physically travel out to then go into a school to go and acquire it? So don't let your set, don't be too set in your ways that you won't allow the lessons of the season teach you the skills of agility. Agility is the new gold in our times. The ability to stay agile, that is, I have a plan, but things will happen that will disrupt that plan and I need to know how to use that thing to get to my point. So let me give you, let me wrap this up with one very simple story. 1930-ish, there was a man called Dave McDonnell. Dave McDonnell wanted to be a writer. He wanted to publish books for a living. That was his vision in life. None of his books will sell. He will go on the streets. Nobody will ever, no, nobody was touching his book with, <laughs> with the one football. You know what he decided to do? He said, as a gimmick, I will start giving perfume with my books as a gimmick. In fact, it wasn't like a well thought. It just said, I want to, I just want to do it as a gimmick to say, okay, even if you don't collect, you just collect perfume, collect a package. He added perfumes to his books. I was giving it out to people on the streets. Guess what he noticed? He noticed that people were more interested in the perfume than in his book. As a result of that, he created what we call the California Perfume Company. In 1939, that company became Avon. The Avon you and I know today, the cosmetic company Avon, started from a man who wanted to become a writer. He wanted to be a published author for a living. A published author became a cosmetic manufacturer. A miner in Sweden, Jungvin Berkefist, started the world's first ice hotel a hotel made totally out of ice. How Berkfist built Hive's hotel was from starting as a miner who was working in a mine, hated being called by numbers, came out, said, I ditched my mining job. What do I have in my hands? What can I do? I have a raft. Someone called him and said, can you take me on a journey down this river? River Thorn, they call it. He said, oh, well, sure, I can. I have knowledge. You pay me a fee. He took the person on a journey. He started the tourism business. When he came back, he said, oh, boy, I can make money from this thing. Went to the tourist company and put his raft there. Whenever people were coming out from the tourist office, he trip down River Thorn, 50 euros. Oh, yes, people were jumping onto his raft. That's why I started making money. The guy said, oh, I need to expand this business. Quick, quick, sharp, sharp. The guy went, called his friends. He started, he had 30 rafts under him inside six months. Business was booming. September came, the, the river froze up. You know, winter can be brutal in Sweden. The whole river froze up. From having business, he went back to no business. He couldn't go back into the mine. He had zero business. So that ice, that river that became ice, frozen up is like what COVID has done to most of us. It froze up our rivers. The rivers where we were used to making money from suddenly became frozen up. I can't raft on this river anymore. What can I do with the ice? And I'm speaking metaphorically to someone now. What can I do with the COVID situation? What can I do with the ice? He went and he went mm. to Japan, acquired skills, came back, brought artists with him, turned the ice on the river into an ice exhibition, ice sculpture exhibition, brought ice sculptors from Sweden and from all over neighboring countries. They started turning the ice into art masterpieces. He sold out the ticket. Everybody are traveling from all over the world to watch. The night before the exhibition started, it started to rain. In winter, it started to rain. The thing started melting. Bergfist was freaking out. His friend said, let us try to cover it. Let us try to save it. It's 24 hours to the exhibition. It will be a disgrace. 
You know what he told them? He said, you can't stop nature from doing what nature does. None of us cannot stop the pandemic. Why are you focusing on what is outside your locus of control? Why are you carried away by what is outside of your control when there is more within your control? Bergfist said, we may not be able to control the rain, but let the river, let it melt away. We, there is something we can control, our passion, our creativity, our skill. As he was talking, one man walked up to him and said, Oga, can I take my um, animal skin and sleep in that igloo that you've built? You know what an igloo is? An igloo is like a semi um, semi-circled house where Eskimos live in. It was one of the it was one of the pieces for the exhibition, but it hadn't melted. And that guy crawled into the igloo, laid his mat and slept. And immediately Berfi said, You slept in an ice building, ice hotel. The following winter, boom, he built a whole hotel out of ice. Bergfist became the guy who made ice, Sweden's largest export. Go check it out. He built the ice hotel that is booked three years, two years in advance. No same ice hotel is ever the same because he brings in different people. And in fact, we have data these days. Go on YouTube and type the making of ice hotel or just type ice hotel. Feed your eyes at the wonder that emerged from a man who learned to ask a question. What can I do with what life has thrown at me? When life throws a lemon at you, you make lemonade. So, hey, people, don't stay back and say COVID has disrupted my life. COVID hasn't disrupted your life. COVID has given you another way of doing things. We call it pivot. Folks, pivot. Move on to something new. Use COVID to do something new. And that's what I'll say to them. Oh my God. This is this is so good. That response is so hard. So it's not enough to say, oh, there's a pandemic, there's an issue. In fact, I, I think the, the, this your this your um answer will also speak to the other question we had coming. You know, somebody saying I've read stories about people that, you know, had pretty much giftedness skills and talent and they still feel they are not productive and the person is asking sister do you really think and believe that nigeria could be a limiting factor to many people finding full expression of their talent is nigeria currently the environment conducive enough for young people to become all that god wants them to be that's a brilliant question whoever asked that so question does, i i i, I think this you. already speaks to that but, yeah, but let me let me let me just put another footnote to it. Brilliant question. Whoever asked that question, God bless you. Yes, Nigeria can if you allow it. <laughs> Nigeria can if you allow it to. I, I came from Nigeria too now. Remember? Paystack, which is now the golden example. Mm-hmm. Two young Nigerians built an, a company that was acquired for $200 million in spite of, in spite of everything that you and I see today as limiting factors. Let me say something. Let me say something to you. Your environment plays a huge role. I am not discounting the environment, but how did people rise above the environment? There was one thing that they did to rise above the environment. First of all, was that they educated themselves outside of the environment. They educated themselves beyond the environment and they educated themselves above the environment okay. start from there whenever you have a when you have a higher level okay. of intelligence okay. and you combine a higher level of inge- intelligence with local intelligence it has the capacity to create something unique educate yourself outside of the context whoever asked that question 
you can go on mm. massive open online courses on Coursera. Take a course in University of Pennsylvania. The University of Pennsylvania that they said you need to take $10,000 to attend. Now you can have courses there free. You have future learn. You have edX. Many, many universities have put knowledge available to your disposal to help you educate yourself out of the, 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 the limitations of, of the country, of the, of the environment. And as you educate yourself out of it, you will use that superior skill to translate the opportunities within that, what you call limited environment into something golden. And the beautiful thing is this, the limitation in Nigeria is, an, is still loaded with opportunities. That's what makes Nigeria a golden Opportunity. example. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something that happened to one of my senior friends. He's, a, he's in his fifties. He was, he, was he was living in the UK here. He said one day, he said to himself, this is my business in Nigeria. Nigeria, no light, no water, no electricity. Everything is terrible. I am, uh, I am, can we get the names of the schools again? Go on, just go on uh, Coursera. Register on Coursera, register on edX. edX is even the top three, top four IV schools, you know, Harvard, um, you know, yeah. MIT yeah. and so on and so forth. Coursera, Harvard, FutureLearn, those three platforms, you will find open courses for you to take on any subject of your choice. If you have a little bit of money and want to invest in yourself, go on a platform like Udemy. Udemy has courses on anything and everything, including how to build a chair from scratch, carpentry, anything and everything, baking, on Udemy, yeah. baking. You want to go to baking school, you don't have big money. Go on Udemy and find a cheap baking course from someone who is, you know, I mean, don't let me even go into it. So we don't have any excuse with terms of educating ourselves out of the context. But let me go back to this story. This my senior friend said he won he jumped on the plane and said, Nigeria is killing my business. And I rightly so. Again, I'm not saying this to discount the fact that Nigeria's business context is very difficult. Don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling the Nigerian business context in this way, but I'm only saying that that context, even in spite of it, people are rising. What he then did was he said he was going to go to his company in Lagos and shut it down. He jumped on a plane one day and said, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to go and shut it down. You know, as God will always do things in very, very funny ways. He said when he got on the British Airways flight, he noticed that 50% of, the, of people on the flight were white people. <laughs> and he said, a question came into his head. Why are these people going to my country? What are they coming to find in my country? If they are going to my country, it means there is something in my country that they want. Yes. And if they want it, why can't I have it? And that's how we reverse this decision. Why are Lebanese coming to Nigeria to build schools, to build bakeries, to become successful? Because they brought superior knowledge into a local context and gave us a value for what we're able to pay for. Wow. Now you are there. You understand the local context. You are seeing it as a limitation. Someone else says, I see the local context as a cloud and atmosphere of opportunities. But I know that I don't have the cognitive capacity to see the opportunity in the environment or even the skill to translate the opportunity into value. Let me educate myself outside of that context, get superior skill and bring the skill back into the context and make money mm. and see things differently. It will come down to one thing, mindset. That's how I'll end, I'll end that there. Mm, mindset. In fact, you know what you've done for us today? You've literally shifted our mindset. You spoke a lot about passion. You spoke a lot about mindset, how you have to have a mind shift to be able to, you know, be able to draw out value from your environment. It's been, it's been, if I could spend more than two hours and it looks as if we're just, just, you know, just starting. This is so good. So much wisdom you've shared, Inka. So much wisdom. You know, I was telling myself that, you know, if I had somebody like Dr. Inka Diwali when I was growing up, you know, to just challenge me like 
this. Maybe I'm a father than, than where I am. But that's the truth. Because you, you spoke about alternative reality. And that's what we are, we're concerned about in the Flickers Hope Foundation. Giving these young people an alternative reality. So that they can step into all that. The opportunities we did not have. Let's give it to them as a tool and a platform for them to become beacons of open date. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. Thank you so much for the gift of your person. You know, when I was preparing for this, one of the exciting things for me is, you know, I'm about to delve into a world of wisdom that you've accumulated over the years. And you're sharing this with us for free. About the fact that you're, you're a board member on, on, on the Flickers of Hope, you're also a passionate coach and mentor to young people. And it's, it's so evident in all that you've shared. We're so happy. We're so delighted and honored to have you with us on this meeting edition. Thank you so much and God bless you. Do you have anything to say in closing? Thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, it's a pri privilege to have been here with you to share this uh, moment with you all. And I pray and hope that this inspires someone and also gives someone the, the permission to go ahead and live their lives to the fullest. So thank you for having me and great work you're doing. And I appreciate you and your team. Thank you so much. Sir. As for everyone that joined us, we want to say thank you very much. We believe our conversations here have been very meaningful to you and they will help you to understand that there are real people that have real stories that had real struggles and we're sharing their triumphs with you. God bless you. <music>